welcome everybody back. Uh, seems like our break, our unexpected, unplanned weather break has been good. We, we got a bigger group than we had uh, two weeks ago, so it's good to see everyone uh, back tonight. I hope you've had a good week, and uh, we're going to add to uh, the strength of the week. So uh, we want to jump in and uh, get right to it tonight in terms of our discipleship uh, content. Uh, we're talking about four doctrines that you need to understand, that every believer needs to understand. Uh, we've talked about creation. Where do we come from? Uh, the authority of God that comes from the fact that He is the one that set it all into motion and made it happen. Uh, we've talked about biblical authority, uh, the Word of God. Basically, that's the foundation for everything else that we talk about is the fact that God's Word is revealed and speaks to us and gives us that foundation for everything else that we believe. Tonight, we're actually going to talk about the third group, which is the nature of Christ, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. And then next week is the big one where we'll try to understand and explain the Trinity, and we'll dive in for that. Does that sound all right? Yeah. Very, very good. Uh, remember, our outline as we are teaching uh, this thing is the first thing we want to know is what does Scripture say? Uh, the second thing we want to know about is why does it matter? Uh, we want to ask the question, what happens when other people get it wrong? And then we also want to ask the question, what happens when we get it wrong? Uh, that second question is in that demo devotional part of our lives when we miss out on this uh, biblical truth. So we've talked a little bit about the question in the last couple of weeks, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which is the authority? Is it what we see around us in terms of creation or is it the recorded Word of God? Which one comes first? The puzzle for us to think about today is the puzzle of mutual exclusivity. And what I mean by that is the puzzle of mutual exclusivity and that is a simple question, what day is today? The truth is that it cannot be both Wednesday and Saturday. You're going to have to pick a day. Uh, it's either Wednesday or it's not Wednesday. What kind of pet do you have? It cannot be both a hamster and an alligator. Uh, if I ask you which one do you have, uh, it's got to be one or the other. It can't be a hamilgator. That doesn't exist. It's one or the other. So the question that we come to this evening is, who is Jesus? And we run into this same question of mutual exclusivity. Who is Jesus? Is he man or is he God? Because in the same way we struggle with this question, whether he is either man or he is God, it is impossible for him to be both. Our minds and our comprehension of that is overwhelmed by the possibility that he is God and that he is a man. In fact, by the time we finish this evening, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the ways that people unpack that struggle. But before we get to that, let's make sure that we have to go through that struggle. Let's make sure that Scripture says this is the truth that we need to apply to our lives. And so the first question is, is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? And so what you have here, if you've got the handout with the passages of Scripture, we have a bunch of Scripture for us to look at uh, tonight, and we'll try to summarize a lot of it, but I want you to see it as we follow along tonight. The clear teaching of Scripture 
Uh, if you take a look at John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word. We understand the Word to be Logos, uh, the Word to be Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Now, not to get bogged down here in our first passage of Scripture, but I love John chapter 1. I love these introductory words to the Gospel of John because they echo to the, what the passages that we looked at two weeks ago, three weeks ago, when we looked at creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John introduces, let me tell you about Jesus. He was with God. He was God. And if you don't believe me, when we talk about who created the world, it was Jesus. He is the one that did that uh, creating. Uh, when we take a look at the next passage from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 uh, through 35, this is the angel's words uh, to Mary, and it tells us, uh, in this passage it says, He will be great and He will call, be called the Son of the Most High. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, listen to these words. This is fabulous. He is the image of the invisible God. Well, we could camp out there just for a while. He is the image of the thing that you cannot see. The firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. See that same theme that we've seen already? In the heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him the fullness of God, the totality of God, was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, uh, talks about uh, having the same spirit that Christ had, uh, who says, who in taking, let's see here, have, your, have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him. And then he will say to those on his left, whoops, that is not the right verse. All right, that was it. Uh, therefore God highly exalted him. Um, boy, that is missing a page, isn't it? All right, well, take my word for it. Um, in Revelation chapter 21, uh, 22, one of the things that we see here in that passage of Scripture is that when we get to heaven and we're looking for the temple, there will not be a temple because what we have in the place of a temple is God Almighty and the Lamb who is Jesus. And those two are put together as being equal and the presence of God is found both in God the Father and in the Lamb uh, who is uh, Jesus. As we take a look at this 
conversation, we see the witness of others here. Um, we see the, uh, the Apostle John say that he is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 54, this is where, I'm pretty sure I lost my sheet here, but this is where the Roman centurion says, this is surely, this must be the Son of God as he watches Jesus die. That's a profound reality that watching Jesus die the response of this hardened centurion, this hardened soldier, is to say, surely this is, surely this is the Son of God. We also see in Mark chapter 1 and verse 24, I'll get to that one in just a moment, but we also saw in the passage that we looked at from John chapter 20, where Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. And I think I listed here in Mark chapter 1 and verse 24 uh, just as a sample that one of the interesting witnesses to the deity of Jesus are the demons themselves. When Jesus casts out the demons, they say, You are the one of the most high. You are the Lord most high. Now, it's a strange thing to see a demon as your <laughs> as a witness for the defense. But they know something about the supernatural. They know something about the world that we cannot see. And they knew before anyone else knew who Jesus was. And so there is evidence that Jesus is divine based on the testimony of Scripture and the people who are up close in the front row. Now, on occasion, people on the front row can misunderstand. Has anyone ever misunderstood you? Uh, have you ever said something and tried to explain something, and then you heard someone else say, well, so-and-so said this. No, oh, that's not what I said at all. So we have the witness of Scripture. We have the testimony of the folks on the front row. But it's very, very important that we also listen to what Jesus' own claims were. And this kind of becomes even more important because what we have on occasion is that somebody will claim the idea of Jesus, the image of Jesus, the, all the good pieces of Jesus, and to claim Him as a great teacher, as an inspirational figure of history, but they just don't buy the deity side. They, they don't believe that Jesus is God. Well, the difficulty with this is that Jesus believed that He was God, and he taught that he was God. In fact, at the core of all of Jesus' teaching was his self-identification that he was God. Let's see if we can't take a look at some of this evidence. What we see here is that he claimed authority over the angels. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 41, uh, what Jesus says is, and he will I will send my angels. He claims that the angels of God belong uh, to him. In Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, this is another one of my favorite passages of Scripture. In Mark chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, this is where the four men carry in uh, the paralyzed man. They lower him through the roof. Jesus looks at this man and says, Your sins are 
forgiven. Jesus claimed a fairly divine right there to the ability to forgive sins. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 46, uh, we discover that Jesus claims the authority to judge. Uh, he claims the authority to judge the world. In fact, this is when he talks about the fact that he will separate the, the uh, he, he will separate the world between um, those that know him and those that don't know him. Um, I think we're back into the passage that we see. He has authority over life. This is John chapter eleven twenty-five. I have the wrong passage here in the in the handout. Uh, but that's where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the resurrection and the life. That's authority that he claims. And in fact, in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, he claims authority over the Sabbath. Now understand, as you read through the Gospels, one of the places where there was constant conflict with Jesus and those around him was how Jesus handled the Sabbath. The Sabbath was understood to be one of those core commandments that came from God, literally was on the tablets come off the mountain. And yet Jesus didn't handle the Sabbath the same way they thought he should handle it. But one of the things he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath belongs to me. The reason this was so controversial is because the Sabbath belongs to God. Jesus says, I know the Sabbath belongs to me, claiming his authority over the Sabbath, therefore claiming his role as God. Jesus continues to make statements. We see in John chapter 14, verses 7 through 9, he claims equality with the Father. In fact, he tells his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The Father and I are one. That's a pretty clear teaching of Jesus' claim for divine uh, authority and the fact that he, is, that he is God. We also see that He supersedes the law. Throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. Now that's a huge sentence. You have heard what Moses said and proclaimed from the mountaintop. But let me give you a new understanding of that. Who has the authority to supersede the law of Moses? Only the one who gave that law, God himself. <laughs> yes, and we're going to get to that. That's the very next point here. And Milton says that, boy, that would just really, really make them mad. Uh, in John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59, uh, Jesus says, let me get it right here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, the layers of that is that he says that he pre-existed Abraham, which you can do the math, that's pretty hard to do. But he doesn't even just say before Abraham before Abraham I was. He says before Abraham I am, claiming that title of Yahweh, I am that I am. In fact, 
Milton's statement is that they were really, really angry by what he said. And that tells us that they understood that this was a direct claim to deity because it says that they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went uh, to the temple. Um, we also see Jesus' response at the trial. Um, it says that they asked him, are you, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. And that's not just a statement that says that's, that's what you say, but Jesus is saying, you've got that right. In fact, there was plenty of opportunities for Jesus to back off and say, no, that's not right, there's a misunderstanding here. In fact, he is going to be condemned to death because he holds on to this statement. You're right, that is what I say, that is what I claim. We do have a couple of validations of Jesus' claims. There's a lot more that we could go into. But in terms of claiming the truth, validating the truth of His claims, we see the miracles. Going back to my favorite passage there in Mark chapter 2, Remember, Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says, your sins are forgiven. And again, they about fall out. How can this person say, your sins are forgiven? No one has the authority to forgive sins except God. And then the story continues here in chapter, Mark chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. It says, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to him, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which, which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or take up your mat and walk. And he says, I say to you, it says, which is easier to, to, to which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. I, I love that passage. Here's the secret. I can say to you, your sins are forgiven. And there's no real way for you to know whether I had the authority to do that. That's invisible. And so it's very easy to walk around and say your sins are forgiven. But to say, stand up and walk, when this person has not been able to walk, now that is highly verifiable. And Jesus said, so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, let me validate that with the miracle of standing up and walking. And the guy that got lowered through the roof walks out the door. And then ultimately, the validation of Jesus as God is the resurrection from the dead. Uh, that's the, the ultimate validation. Do you have thoughts or questions or responses to the idea of Jesus as God? Okay. We're going to shift to the second half of our conversation, Jesus as man. Now, I think that it is interesting for us because 
different people will have a different perspective on which side of this equation is the more difficult to believe. There would be many people that would have a difficult time believing that this son of a carpenter, walking the dusty roads of Palestine, was actually God himself. That is amazing. Now, I think that for many of us who have grown up in church, those of us who have given our lives to Christ, we are familiar with that teaching as a bedrock teaching of our understanding. And so I think most of us, at least intellectually, have a clear understanding of Jesus as God. I think my experience is the place where we need to be stretched the most is the reminder that Jesus is man. And so let's take a little bit of time to take a look at this uh, passage of Scripture. Now, uh, it's almost interesting that it's not quite as emphasized in the text because nobody that hung out with Jesus had any question that he was human. Uh, that was the given. That was the obvious thing that they saw. Uh, but let's remind ourselves uh, of that. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word who was in the beginning was with God and was God. That God, it says, in that Logos, in John chapter 1, verse 14, just a few verses down, it says, And the Word, the Logos, the one who was in the beginning, was with God and was God, who created all things, that Logos, that Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Became a living, embodied person. And so... In John chapter 1, you have the deity of Christ and you have the humanity of Christ. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, this is from uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Uh, he says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This man. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 15, it talks about Adam is the first man and Jesus is the next man. And it says, whereby sin entered the world through one man, so salvation enters into the world through another man, and that is Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter uh, 2 and verse 5, it tells us, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Again, the emphasis for the biblical writers is to say, here's the headline, Jesus is God, but don't overlook the fact that they also stated the obvious, that Jesus is also man. We see in the passage that we looked at a little bit ago in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, it talks about how Jesus, who was God, emptied himself of all of the attributes of deity and took on flesh like a man even to the point of death on a cross. Again, that passage is teaching us both sides, both the deity and the humanity, all in the same paragraph. Now, a few more things that are less theological and more just observable about Jesus' humanity. Jesus had a real birth experience. 
He was in a strange place under strange circumstances, but Jesus was carried inside the womb of Mary. He was delivered as any other infant would be and dealt with all of those initial things that an infant would have needed. In fact, Jesus gasped for breath in his first moments of life, just like your children uh, did in those first moments of life. Jesus has real human physiology. We see in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, that Jesus is hungry. This is where he is in the wilderness and Satan tempts him. And he's been in the wilderness for 40 days without food. He is hungry. That's a very real experience. Just as your stomach says, I've got to have something to eat, Jesus in the same way had the very same experience that you had. Jesus is thirsty there on the cross. It tells us that he was thirsty. Jesus has fatigue. This is where he... Uh, stops by the side of the well in Samaria and talks to the woman that it says that he was weary from uh, the journey. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 32, it tells us that Jesus has limited knowledge. He is talking about when the end of the world comes. He says, only the Father knows. I don't know when that comes. Jesus experienced a real death. Uh, I like the Mark passage because uh, Pilate's not sure that Jesus is really death, dead, and so he has to send some folks out to double check. Is Jesus really, really dead? It is confirmed that he is dead. Basically, the coroner has made uh, a statement. These are all evidences of the experience that Jesus has that mark his humanness. We also see that Jesus has human emotions. Jesus is troubled. Isn't that an interesting uh, term there that Jesus is troubled when he sees things sometimes? Jesus has compassion. We, we could find dozens of passages where Jesus has compassion. Jesus experiences grief. That's that John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. Whether it was grief over the loss of Lazarus or whether it was grief over the sadness of the community that grieved over Lazarus, he was stirred deeply. Uh, Jesus has anger. You don't go in to the temple, gather up a whip, turn over tables, and throw the people out of the temple unless there isn't some degree of righteous anger that he experiences in his life. And then we could have gone to a lot of different passages of Scripture, but it tells us that Jesus loved. All of those are human emotional experiences that are there. Do you have any thoughts or questions on Jesus' humanity? Gene, that's a good question. Um, it, it's not from our text tonight, but um, <laughs> no, but no, it, it's a good question because Jesus in that Matthew in that Mark chapter two passage, uh, it says seeing their faith. So it wasn't directly the faith of the paralytic; it was the faith of the four men that carried him. And because of the faith of the four men, he says that this man's sins are forgiven, and he's like nice. I want to walk out of here. Uh, 
I didn't even ask for that. They didn't ask for that. But I think part of that is that Jesus saw this as a great teaching moment uh, to deal with both His authority, to reveal His authority to forgive sins, and then to validate that with that physical um, miracle. And that was done in this crowded room that had the people of the population there. It tells us that the scribes and the Pharisees are in that room as well. So everybody is kind of watching. The impression that we get from the Mark passage is that this is very early in his ministry. So he really establishes the tone by handling both the spiritual and the authority to handle the, the physical in that early passage. But you're right, the, the question of he sees the faith of the four men and he forgives the sin of that man. I'm going to ask about that when I get there. We're going to take a look at some theological errors from history. And I remember as I studied this in my growing up years, these seemed to be arguments that people would have in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. And the question becomes, why are they having these arguments then about the nature of Jesus? Part of it is you get a little bit of distance from Jesus' presence but more so than that, people have had time to meditate and try to understand what this means. You've also had times for people to say, let me explain this to you. This is what it means that Jesus is fully man. Or this is what it means that Jesus is fully God. And so they'll stand up and they'll explain it to everybody. And then when someone stands up and explains it to everybody, they're like, actually, you missed a step there. And what you have is that there's this tension for this period of time while they are trying to find the right words to provide precision to the detail that we see in the Gospels and in the New Testament. So let's just talk through a couple of what some of these errors are. Um, now, I want you to know that some of these errors become quite popular because they have an element of logic to them. You're going to hear some of these and you're going to be like, oh, that makes sense. I, I, I like that. Don't like any of these. Okay, the, these are what we call heresy. These, these are not true. But I want to point that out to you because there is a sense that their number one benefit is, I can see that. That's logical. Their number one problem is, it doesn't fully capture what's revealed in Scripture. And the fact that it's logical means that we've taken the big truth that God has given to us and fit it into our small minds. And if it fits snugly inside of your small mind, it is not capturing the truth and the reality of God. So here's the tension. How can it be both Wednesday and Saturday at the same time? How can your pet be a hamster and an alligator at the same time how can Jesus be fully God and fully man here are some efforts that were made to bridge the gaps one attempt to bridge the gap to minimize the discomfort that's found in Jesus being fully man and fully God is called adoptionism and adoptionism says that Jesus was a human being who at some point in life was adopted 
as God. Now, the common teaching of this is that there is a point that Jesus is adopted as God, and there is a certain point in which that adoption reverts and leaves in Jesus' life. Now, what that does is that takes care of some of messiness that eliminates the reality that Jesus is carried in, that God is carried in a womb for nine months, that Jesus is born through a typical labor. It, it eliminates the idea that God dies on a cross. And so there are some folks that would say that really what happens when the, when the dove comes to rest on Jesus at his baptism, that that's the moment that he's adopted. All of that time before that, whether it be the time in the womb, or whether that is the time that Jesus is growing up as a carpenter's kid, kicking around stuff in the neighborhood, all of that stuff, you don't have to deal with the question of, how would God do that? So there at the beginning of his ministry, he is adopted as God. The baptism is a symbol of that. And then at some point in time, that adoption leaves and he reverts back to being fully human. And I think some people would say, you know, maybe when Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the moment that the adoption comes to an end. Now again, you can listen to that and say, oh, I kind of like that. That, that. that makes sense. Except that doesn't express what Scripture tells us. That becomes something that's more comfortable for our mind than it is for anything that we've just looked at here in Scripture. Um, another attempt to just kind of process how Jesus is both God and man. This is one called doceticism, and it comes from the words meaning to seem. And what this one teaches is that Jesus was fully God. No questions, no difficulties. Jesus is fully God, but he only appeared to look like a man. And so therefore, he never took on the things that, that we experience. I think there's sometimes in which we kind of have a functional docetism, docetism in our faith. The idea of Jesus being tired and hungry and sleepy and not knowing everything and being limited in what he understood we're not comfortable with that. And so what we can say is that Jesus really never was hungry, but sometimes he seemed like he was hungry just to make it feel more realistic. No, no, no. Jesus was fully man. He wasn't just pretending to be man. He was a man. And so uh, we deny docetism. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about this idea of Gnosticism, this idea that there's big God that can't touch anything in this world and there's this world that is, is just broken there's nothing you can do about it and so what you have is these mini versions of God going all the way down and, and so there's all this space between and then Jesus is one of those in between another version of this is that because Jesus is only appearing to be man he never really touches the contagious world of this world and so the Gnostics sometimes would teach something along the lines that Jesus only appeared uh, to be man. One of the most famous false teachings um, about Jesus is uh, Arianism. Uh, 
And again, this was an attempt to hold on to monotheism, that there is one God. And so there was this struggle, and we'll get into this a little bit next week when we talk about the Trinity, but there was a struggle with the idea that both the Father and the Son were both God. They've been taught, the Lord your God is one. And so therefore, they're going to hold on to the Lord your God is one and say Jesus is really just the next best thing to God. He is the highest created order, but He is not of the same substance as God. He's really close to God. He's similar to God. He's like God, but there's really only one God, and so therefore He can't be God. And then there's one more attempt. And this is the attempt to try to find a way for Jesus to be both God and man. And this is Apollinarianism. There, there isn't a test on this, but I just want you to hear the ideas. Sometimes we talk about a person's being. Is their mind, their body, and their soul. Those that held on to Apollinarianism said that here's the thing. That if Jesus has a mind and a body and a soul, then... Jesus' mind and his body is human, but his soul never stops being divine. And so Jesus is both God and man, but only in segments. Part of him is man, part of him is God. And we'll talk about this in a moment. But one of the things that come out of this is that what Jesus does not take on, he cannot save. So if he were to be mind and body human, soul divine, then he could come and he could save my mind and my body. But he cannot save my soul because he never became a soul here. That he never took on the humanity in terms of his soul. So those are four different shortcuts that have been taken over time to try to solve the question of how Jesus is both God and man. We're not looking for a shortcut and we're not looking for a way to make it easier. We're trying to capture what Scripture says. Let's um, take a couple more quick notes here. Uh, what happens when others get it wrong? Uh, this is more contemporary. We've talked about Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, but probably one of their key points is that they reject the deity of Christ. In some ways, it's very much like modern-day Arianism that says, He is the most special person who has ever lived. He is the closest thing to God that ever lived, but He's not God. He's one step below God. Our faith is built on Jesus as God. Uh, we've talked about this as well. Mormonism, uh, Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, would teach that Jesus is a created uh, being. Uh, Milton, I'm going to come back to you in just a moment. What happens when we get this wrong? 
What happens when we get this wrong is that we lose the power and the miracle when we take a short when we take a shortcut or we skip a step. It's not supposed to be logical. It's not supposed to be within our understanding. It is larger than us. And so when we take one of these shortcuts, one of those four that we looked at or something else, well then sure, it fits in our pocket much better. But we're not looking for a God that fits in our pocket. Um, we lose the wonder when we skip a step or make a shortcut. We lose the wonder when we celebrate Christmas. We are celebrating the fact that the God of the universe becomes flesh, dwells among us, that He is born of the Virgin Mary, and He lives amongst the dust, the cattle, the small town, the carpenter life, all of that stuff. God Himself did that. We don't want to lose that. And then when we come to the Easter season and we see Jesus' death, Man, that's not just a person who's being abused or mistreated. That is a God who is emptied of Himself, His power and His authority, so that He can become obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Those holidays, those truths, lose their power if it's just a kid, if it's just a guy, if God doesn't become flesh and dwell among us. And then it also loses its application and its relevance when we take a shortcut or when we skip a step. And what I mean here is part of what we talked about a moment ago. What Jesus did not take on he cannot say. But we also learn that Scripture teaches us that we have the power and the ability to follow in Jesus' footsteps because He has blazed a path for us. We can conquer sin in our lives because He has defeated sin. We can pray to Jesus because He faced temptation, because He was fully human, and so when we pray to Him, we are praying to a person who knows what temptation feels like. And if we release the tension of Him as fully God and fully man, either side, if we just say, I'm just going to pay attention to Jesus as fully God, we lose an immense amount of the application and relevance. The same thing if we go the other direction.